often Jesus, there's a couple of times in the scriptures where Jesus showed up and it's as though when he made the statement, I am, or when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration or in Revelation, when we see him in splendor and glory, cats make the proper response. He says, man, there's these fitting functions we were made to worship God. And so that's a mandatory function, except it's not a chore for people that delight in him. It's just the proper response. And you don't have to work it up once unless there's something broke. It just happens like a reflex. A reflex just happens. You don't have to make your arm do what it does. Uh, you don't have to make your knee do what it does. It's a reflex. You don't have to try to blink. You'll blink. It's a reflex unless something's broke worship evangelism adoration of god all of the things that are mandatory functions for the believer automatically happen unless something is broke but then there's that's the functions but then there are forms so if you got to worship the question is well how will we worship today <laughs> the bible talks about a myriad of ways that you can worship you can worship by making a joyful noise sometimes you worship by bowing to your knee and not saying a mumbling word sometimes you pull out two turntables and a mic sometimes you pull out a viola and an accordion sometimes you stand up and just open your mouth and sometimes you just think great thoughts of god forms it's a variety take your pick you know, as the hip-hop generation, one of the things that, and that doesn't mean you are hip-hop, and that doesn't mean you like hip-hop. You may be oblivious to hip-hop. You may hate hip-hop. But in history, that's the timeline that you fall on, this timeline where you're a minority if you hate hip-hop. I mean, just to go, like, if you're a minority if you don't know about hip-hop. People in other countries know about hip-hop. So the idea is we fit in this timeline that where hip-hop is this 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 seems like this dominant presence, especially in our urban settings. And so we wonder, man, what do you expect from the hip-hop generation, the person that lives in hip-hop times, whether they like it or not, what would you expect if they fall, run into this God? Would you expect something different? Would you expect them to get together and not worship? Would you expect them to get together and not be adore Him? Would you expect them to get together and not speak highly of Him? Some people think, oh, Hip-hop, I guarantee you I'll go and get away from God. But the believers, you don't get away from God because being close to him is a mandatory function. And so we do it through song. We do it through gathering. We do it through media. We do it through all of the things that God has given us. So just want to let you know, for you all who are visiting for the first time or you all who are wondering because you're hearing about what's happening. You probably hear that a couple of rappers go to this church. You probably hear that a couple of dudes that got an album go to this church and you think, I wonder what's going to happen when I go to this church. Then you get here and you see the same thing that happens worldwide when Christians who fall in love with the triune God get together. Worship, adoration, deep thoughts of him, reflection, nothing different, maybe different forms, same function. So welcome this morning to the place where we gather around the same things that the universal body of Christ gather around. Let's pray. Father God, as we transition from singing songs consecutively about your goodness, singing songs 
in your direction, making affirmations as a church body that you are holy, that we could search uh, mountains and, and, and we can search the heavens, but there's no one like you. Lord God, it's fitting that we talk like that this morning, Lord. It's fitting that if we didn't speak like that through song, that our hearts at least were saying it. However, we don't come together so that our hearts can do stuff. We come together so that our hearts will come out of the, the abundance of the heart will come out of our mouth. Collective affirmation that we agree that Jesus is Lord. We agree that you are God. We agree that there is none like you. We come to make a big deal about the person of Christ. We come to make a big deal. We come to raise a little fuss about how people sleep on you, Lord. Please invoke all of us in here as we're, many of us are young, Lord God. Most of us are, are young and or middle-aged. And Lord God, may we be invoked, if we've never done it before for the right reasons, to join with people who make a big deal about you. You really are a big deal. And you're looking for people who will bear witness to the fact that you are a big deal, Lord God. It's impossible to know you for real and sleep on you. It's impossible to know you for real and be casual about you. It's impossible, Lord God, to try to muster up something for you, God. If anything, we run and borrow stuff, Lord God, and say, i got to lay it before the feet of my master. Oh, Lord God, do that. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Today I want to just continue. You know we're in the book of John. In the book of John, basically John is caught up and impressed with and overwhelmed with and blown away by Jesus. John lets you know because most people don't mind being hype on God. But they feel funny about Jesus. John starts his book and writes his book saying, I know you want to make a big deal about God because that's more socially acceptable, but I've got to move you from thinking that you're giving God his props over to you knowing you're not giving God his props until you're properly giving Jesus his props. He says, but lest you think I'm talking about two different beings, Jesus is God. So you don't have to worry. Then he goes on and he says, man, in verse 1 to 18, Mason uh, was dropping on the boominess of Jesus Christ, how he's everything that God is, how he became flesh and was chilling among a group of people on earth. And that group of people said, and we beheld his glory. I mean, other people slept on it. He talked about how in Corinthians, the God of this age blinds the mind of people so they can't peep how booming, how, how, how radiant God God's gospel is, and the gospel is none other than Jesus Christ. So then he goes on and he says, let me talk to you about the need for people to witness properly, testify properly about this Jesus Christ. So today we're going to pick up in John's gospel. We're going to look at verses uh, 19. We're going to try to get all the way through 34. So much in there, but it's a narrative now. And so I want to just highlight some things, but Let me read it first and pray that God will rock you with just the mere words of the text, and then let's unpack it. Starting with 19. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said to him, What then? Are you Elijah? 
Uh, and they asked, uh, uh, when he confessed, I'm not the Christ, and they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked them, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was, a, uh, he was before me. Uh, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. May the Lord rock you with those words. Today we're going to talk about the God who says, can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Is Sam in the house? Sam is not in the building. All right. Young brother Sam and I one day driving on Broad Street after a night at Epiphany Fellowship when we were just a Bible study meeting on Thursdays. I had a black 1990 Nissan Maxima, had a little, uh, little bit of get up, not much, but a little something, something. All of a sudden, I'm driving. Um, now, just recently, I heard that I, people think my driving skills are suspect. I don't believe them, but these set of stories will prove uh, contrary, but everybody's saying it, so I'm like, hey, maybe I need to check the way I am behind the wheel. 1990, I'm driving up Broad Street. All of a sudden, my story, and this is the truth, nothing but the truth. A dude swings into my lane real quick. We all gussing at about 45. A dude gets into my lane. I mean, just, something like, ah, oh, that's all right. Then stops on his brakes on a dime. And I slam on the brakes, start swerving, <laughs> crash into the back of him. I look over at Sam like, dang, did you see that? In my mind, I'm thinking, dang, I know it's going to look like it's my fault because I hit him from the back. But if only someone had seen, but Sam's in the car. Sam, did you see what happened? Nah. When I looked up, you was ramming into the back of him. I'm like, dang. It said, this time I need a witness. I mean, one time I was in Texas just driving in my 1990 Mazda. Yeah, I always have old cars because I can't afford the new ones. But anyway, I'm in the Mazda. I'm just chilling. I pass a dude. It was legal. He doesn't like it. He drives up past me into some illegal lane, comes through, Rams my car with a raggedy old pickup truck. 
and then keeps going. I'm like, did you see this? Looking around, I go up to him, look at him. He was like, like what? What you want to do? I'm sitting here like, hey, what can I do? I don't have a witness. <laughs> All of a sudden now, me and, now Wells is the driver, brother named John Kevin Wells. We chilling up here on Island Avenue. This was a while back. All of a sudden, a truck jumps two mediums, bang, bang, almost hits us. Wells, I mean, accelerates just fast enough to get out of the way. Car goes plummeting into the trolley tracks. Everybody comes rushing over. It's an epileptic who had a fit. He's over there, airbag out. Everybody's sitting there gathering around. About four people come up. Yo, you need a witness? I got you. Giving us cards, all kinds of stuff. Now, it was clear whose fault it was there. We wouldn't have to go to court and run through anything. When we need a witness, no witnesses around. When we don't need a witness, four witnesses are around. I thought about that and said, in heaven, there's a book called The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. In heaven, you won't need to bear witness. You'll just already agree. But on earth, every one of us is called to be a witness. The whole term is a judicial term or a term of the courtroom that anticipates that the very God who's saying, can I get a witness, is looked at skeptically by society. I walked the streets with Pastor Mason this week, and as we walked around, we said, we need a witness. I know they don't know that Jesus is who we said he is. I know they don't know that Jesus is what we say he is. <laughs> Somebody's got to be a witness. As I look at believers, blunts in hand, ciggies in hand, bruise in hand, all I can think about is, dang, we need a witness. Today, God introduces us to this concept of God having for himself a witness. And as we keep going, you'll see that John, and we're going to meet this John in a minute, is God's star witness. John introduces us to a man simply named John. John as not one of the synoptic gospels, meaning John's gospel is different and has different information than the other three which are more in, com in common, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John already assumes that you know about the man he simply names John. Matthew introduces John as John the baptizer, gives you his rundown, tells you that this dude was scruffy, that this dude had, it gives you his fashion, that he wore camel's hair and that he had a belt, tells you about his diet, that he shopped at Whole Foods, that he had honey and wild locusts. He was like them dudes that always make you feel funny because you chomping on beef. <laughs> Matthew and John assumes that you know that John came on the scene telling cats off. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, judging people. Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Matt, John assumes, the, the writer John of the book, the gospel of John assumes, you know Matthew's side to John, the baptizer. He assumes that you're up on Mark's account. Mark just, you know, Mark likes to get straight to it. Mark is an action book. Mark comes in and just says, now after John was in prison, see, he just told you John caught a case. You get the Mark, you just know, as soon as you see it, oh yeah, John was on lockdown. 
all of a sudden, he just gets straight to it. Later on, he unpacks why he was on lockdown. But Mark just goes on. John assumes you understand that. He understands, under, uh, assumes you understand Luke's version. Luke gives you his birth, you know, starts up. Oh, isn't he so cute? John, you should have seen it. He was so unique. A prophet came, visited his father. Oh, man, his father was righteous. And his father didn't believe it, so his father couldn't speak until he was born. And his mom, Elizabeth, was old. But even in her old age, she bore this unique child, John. John had the Holy Ghost. You know what I'm saying? It's the closest we can find to getting the Holy Ghost and, you know what I'm saying, and making you jump in the script. I hope I didn't offend y'all, but John leaps in the presence of Jesus Christ, you know, in in Elizabeth's womb. Other than that, you really don't see it like that. But next thing you know, he says, I assume you understand Matthews. I assume you understand Marks. I assume you understand John. I I mean, Luke, I don't even want to talk about that aspect of John the baptizer. John is very selective and says, I want to talk to you about John's witness. So he starts off by saying, This is the witness or the testimony of John when the Jews and priests and Levites from Jerusalem asked him, who are you? We're going to look at three things today and I'm going to get out your way. The demand for a witness. We're going to look at the description of a witness. And we're going to look at the details of his witness. There's a demand for a witness, and it starts off by saying, somebody came and said, yo, who are you? Who's the somebody? It says the Jews. The Jews in John's gospel, more times than not, are a group that's against Jesus. But at this point, because it doesn't always mean that, at this point, the Jews are just an inquiring group. So we see the demand for a witness is simply because there are people who are doing spiritual investigation spiritual investigation. These people had heard about John. See, they had Matthew's scoop too. So they heard about John, how John was calling people out. They heard about John, how many people were flocking to him. John comes at this point during a time where the nation of Israel had great anticipation of a Messiah. And now most of us, when we read it in today, no one's looking for anything anymore. No one's looking. Only thing we're looking to God for is personal blessings. The Jews had a national uh, perspective that one day, because Greek had conquered them, Rome had conquered them, they felt the oppression of Rome, and they were looking for a Messiah, a Christ. The Greek version of Messiah is Christ. And they were looking for this one. So in a time of spiritual expectation and in a time of spiritual uh, investigation, we need a witness. John is saying, man, because he's making this stir, people start coming to him. And they want to know, are you the Christ? But they don't ask him, are you the Christ? They come like, we just want to know who you are. So look, it says here, when they said, who are you? John says what? He didn't say, hey, I'm John, I'm the son of, and you know, I had a unique birth. And like, none of that, just as John doesn't, the, the apostle John who wrote. He says, they say, who are you? Verse 20. And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. First of all, you see that this dude is adamant about, I can tell where you're already going. You heard about what I've been doing. You peep my ministry. You see my popularity. You see that everybody's coming over to me. I'm baptizing people. And the interesting thing about John's baptism is that baptism was normally for Gentiles, non-Jews, who wanted to get in and get close with the God they believed was true, the Jews' God. 
At the time, you had to come, so you were a proselyte, somebody who says, I'm a Gentile, but I'll put myself up under all the stuff that Jews put themselves up under that's necessary to have favor with their God. I want your God. Ruth said this to Boaz, if you know the story. Ruth said to, I mean, excuse me, to Naomi. Naomi, who was a Jew, Ruth was a, a Moabitess. Jew, uh, Ruth said, your God will be my God. I don't want my God. We got a whole bunch of gods. I don't want that God. I want your God. Well, if you wanted her God, if you wanted the real God, you had to do some things. If you were male, you had to get circumcised and you had to be baptized, among other things. But all of a sudden, you look in John's line, and he's baptizing Jews. Jews are like, we don't need baptism. I know we need, you know, ceremonial cleansing, but we don't need baptism like Gentiles need baptizing. John the Baptist comes on the scene, baptizing Jews and Gentiles, saying, yes, you do. Repentance of this new order means even Jews have to come and get baptized and be purified like Gentiles do. All of a sudden, in this time of expectation and investigation, the Jews come to him. Are you? And John already, the baptizer already says, I'm not the Christ. Emphatically, in this time of speculation, this time of investigation, there was a hope. There was a time of expectation for a Messiah, a military one. But some people believed that Messiah was going to be or the Christ was going to be a spiritual leader. So though John wasn't coming on the scene with any military promise, he did come on the scene with spiritual promise. And so in this time of expectation, in this time of investigation, John said, this is a perfect time for me to witness. Not only that, it says here, uh, and let's keep reading, verse 20, it says, he confessed, did not deny, that's his emphaticness, verse 21. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. It's almost like John's questions or answers are getting more and more short. So John is sitting up here saying, Dad, I know you want to know, am I the Christ? I'm not the Christ. Well, then maybe if you're not the Christ, then he say, what you talking about, John? I wasn't asking you, are you the Messiah? So you see, John was right in terms of their inquiry. They go right to, well, then are you Elijah? The Jews believed that Elijah was going to come before Messiah. Okay, you're not Messiah. Well, maybe you're Elijah. And John says, oh, no, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm not. Now, we do know that Jesus said he was Elijah. But what we're seeing here is John wasn't aware that he was somebody that everybody would make a big deal about. John comes on the scene to be a witness, not to talk about, yo, I'm somebody special. We're going to get on to that in a minute. They say, OK, maybe you're not that. Maybe you're the prophet because they thought there was a prophet that was coming. And so, uh, and it's true, Deuteronomy 18 talks about there will be a prophet like Moses, but of course he'll be better than Moses. They thought that was somebody other than the Christ. So for them, they say, okay, are you Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? In other words, who are you? Are you a big deal? Because it looks like you have all the stuff that comes with being a big deal. In this day of speculation, in this day of expectation, in this day of spiritual investigation, we need a witness. But we don't need a witness to who we are. We need a witness to who he is. Hmm. So he goes on. Check this out. And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah says. Listen, y'all. It comes clear that now he's not just 
a witness because there is this spiritual investigation, just generic, I just want to know who you are. Now there seems to be a spiritual interrogation. It's one thing for people to just want to know truth. You know how you witness to people who really want to know? It's another thing when you start bearing witness to people who they don't want to know anymore. Now they're beyond just wanting answers. They really are using questions to make statements. That's what they're doing. They move on. They say, come on, man. All right. If you're not that, then who are you? And look what John says, because we move from this demand for witness to a description of John's witness. He says, I am the voice of. Of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. All this teaching, all this preaching, all this emphasis. And it's like, man, you're doing all of this and you're not the people who look like the big shots? John says no, because a witness de-emphasizes the importance of self or minimizes the importance of self and magnifies the importance of Christ. Let's look at it. He, does, he, he, he just says, just consider me a voice. A de-emphasis on who he is. It's not about who I am. It's not about my lineage. They knew he was the son of a priest. But John doesn't talk about that. John gets straight to just call me a voice. I'm just in the wilderness. He didn't say, yo, I live over there in the... I'm a voice and I chill in the wilderness. What do you do? Hold large crusades in your honor? Nah. I just street sweep, preparing the way for the Lord. I, I, like, see, he quotes Isaiah 40, where the prophet is said to say, there's one who's just a voice who's coming to prepare, move trash out the way, and set things straight so that the king can come in. See, most people back then knew that in the desert, deserts, of course, weren't paved. So when a king was traveling, if he had to go through the desert, people went ahead and they began to sort of move all the obstacles out, repair any uh, nastiness in the tracks, in the trails that they would carry so that the king could come in. John says, look, I'll minimize the importance of self. I'm not who you think is coming. I'm the one who's just preparing the way for him. He minimizes that. We're in a day right now where people don't want to minimize the importance of this self. A lot of these preachers, when you deal with them, a lot of preachers, a lot of public figures, they are sure that you know that they have honor. Here is somebody that Jesus Christ called the greatest to ever be born of a woman. But when we see him through the lens of the writer of John's gospel, this dude is saying, don't even look at me as anybody special. Just see me as a voice. A voice in the wilderness sweeping the streets. He minimizes the importance of self. Today, I was just peeping, just did brush up on that guy in Florida who called himself Jesus Christ. There's a man that just came up, the news is covering him, and their, their spill on him is, meet a man who says he's Jesus Christ, drives a BMW, has three Rolexes, and preach indulgence. That's the script on him. Well, if I'm Jesus Christ, then here's John denying he's the Christ and saying, and guess what? I'm just a voice. So a witness minimizes themselves. We don't like to hear that in an age of self, poor self-esteem. And we like, come on, we're always beefing each other up. And we're always making sure that people know who we are. John says, take it from me. 
a witness minimizes the importance of self. And not only that, magnifies the importance of Christ. Look what he says here. He says, I'm a voice. Just make it straight the way of the Lord. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, 25. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He magnifies the importance of Christ. We live in a day where you don't just need to not big yourself up and then keep quiet. We live in a day where we need people who are specialists at magnifying the importance of Christ. We see this all through since John was met. John came on the scene and he denies who he is. He cuts to the chase and he says, don't worry about me. I'm pointing to somebody else. Now, they said, why are you baptizing? John says something interesting. I baptize with water. And you would think that he would go on to say, but, but after his but is nothing about baptism. It's about, but there's one among you. John is saying, you, I'm not even here to even talk about what is obvious, that I baptize. You're missing who I'm doing this for because you're caught up trying to figure out who I am and what I do. How many people's ministries are bigger than the God of their ministries? How many people? I mean, we live in a day. Right now, all kinds of big-time leaders couple up with rappers. The same rappers who reject their Jesus seem to accept them. John says, no, that's not a witness. A witness doesn't let you elevate the messenger while you reject the message. He says, that's not what a witness does. We're in an age where God is saying, can I get a witness? Somebody who doesn't mind minimizing who they are and bigging up who Jesus is. And when people are ready to give him too much props, he knows how to turn it away and say, no, make a beeline out of there. Even Jesus in witness mode says, I don't come for the glory of myself. I come for the glory of my father. I come in his name. He says, if somebody comes in their own name, y'all seem to not have a problem with him. See, when people come, you know who I am and you know what I have, we flock to it. John said, but that's not a witness. The demand for a witness is we live in a time of spiritual investigation. Everyone wants to know something religious. We live in a time, spiritual expectation. People expect something religious to happen at least on Sunday. But he says, yo, man. This is not just that, man. This sometimes, this is an age of spiritual interrogation. People are going to come at you. Will you be able to bear witness? You say, what does it look like? The description of a witness. It looks like you taking the attention off yourself. And it looks like you putting all the attention on Christ. Hmm. Let's keep going to the details of John's witness. This is where it gets heavy. The next day. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's stop right there. My teacher says this, I had a professor that said, when you read the Bible, we don't read the Bible as a Jew. At least we don't stop there. We read the Bible as a Christian. Because in Christ, things come into their full, vivid, crisp color. And I'm going to tell you why that's necessary. If we just look at what John says here, John says, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We're Christians. Already we are hearing the Lamb that was slain. Already we're hearing Jesus and his humiliation. Already we're thinking Jesus and his bloodshed. John comes on the tail end of an era where people didn't want a slain lamb. They wanted a conquering king. In Revelation 5, it talks about a lamb, a lamb before whom the nations are dealt with, a lamb who's powerful. Usually we say he's a lamb and he's a lion, and we pull the imagery of lion in order to say, but he's not just soft. In the Jewish mind, the people who were hoping for a Messiah were hoping for a lamb who wasn't soft, not just a lion who wasn't soft. You can read about it in a lot of the the apocryphal books, the books that aren't canonized, but they still give you helpful information about the mindset of the Jews at the time. And in there, they talked about a lamb or a a horned ram who was coming and he was going to be mighty. So the first thing, the details of the witness is about the power of Jesus Christ. Our witness is not just about a soft Jesus who's on a cross looking defeated. Our Jesus is about a lamb, but not just the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was powerful to reign. That's what John was saying. Behold the lamb. You remember John? John was telling everybody he's coming and his, his sickle is at the wheat. The threshing floor. He says when he comes, and he was looking at all the unjust judges, when he comes, he's going to deal with this. So much so that when John was arrested, he got frustrated because word had gotten to them that Jesus was on a crusade healing and just having fun with people. He was like, wait a minute, this is not the ram that's coming to take away the the sin of the world. This isn't the the beefy ram that's supposed to come and deal with injustice. This dude is healing people and raising people from the dead. That's nice and all, but I'm in jail. So the idea of this being from John the Baptist or John the Baptist's perspective, not the lamb who's weak, but this is the lamb who's powerful. But we don't look at it through the eyes of John the Baptist only. We look at this through the eyes of the Spirit. The Spirit of God lets us know that Jesus is just as powerful as John said he was. But he's not just powerful to reign. He's powerful to suffer. Because we do know that he is the Lamb. The Lamb of Isaiah 53 who was led like a a lamb to his shearers. A lamb who does not just take away the injustice of the world, but takes away the sin issue that keeps man and God separated. We know that he is that same lamb who did shed his blood, who chose to show his power, not just in how he conquered evil when he first came, but how he endured evil under the evil hand of man. We're talking about Jesus, a witness to his power. Power to reign. Behold the Lamb of God, the beefy one of Revelation 5, and the Jesus who suffered, Isaiah 53, the Lamb who just went to the shearers and just didn't utter a mumbling word. We bear witness to a Jesus who's double-edged, powerful, and never, like, weak. He's powerful, and he plays the low. It's different than when you're weak. He's not weak. He plays the low. He submits to, he operates in weak mode. Christians have a banging God. 
we bear witness to this God. But not only that, John continues and says, not only do I witness to the power of Jesus Christ, I witness to the one who's preeminent. This is he I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was, uh, he was before me. In Christianity, we believe in a preeminent God, one who has first place in everything. And to secure it, God made sure that nothing that anybody did that is worth anything, they do before Jesus did. So nobody got up from the grave never to go back from the grave before Jesus did. Lazarus got up. The widow of Nain's son got up, but they went back down. Jesus is the first person, so he says he's the firstborn from among the dead. The Bible says that he's the firstborn of creation, meaning God looks at him as the apex of humanity. There's not a greater or a man who's before Jesus Christ in human history. The Bible makes, he says, so he would have first place in everything. That would be like going to the Olympics in, you, uh, in every single uh, competition. Everything from the 50-yard dash to the decathlon to snowboarding, Winter Olympics, Summer Olympics, and every time you show up, you're first place. It would be so unfair. He's first place in everything. <laughs> That's Jesus. You know, sometimes, have you ever, like, been winning something so much you sort of lose on purpose? Because you just don't like that feeling of total domination. You're like, nah, but... I mean, there's times when, I mean, I remember I used to, like, I mean, whatever it was, if somebody you're playing, there's no competition, and sooner or later, man, you just, and they want to leave, like, oh, forget it, I'll never beat you. All right, come on, no, no, go ahead. And you spot them points and everything, like, no, you, look, we going to 11. You got 10, and I got nothing. And then you just get the 10, and if you think they're going to leave, you sort of, like, lose on purpose, just so they play you again. No, don't play that. All right. Jesus says, I have no problem winning everything. First place in everything. But not only that. We're looking at his pre-existence. <laughs> Listen, y'all, we're talking about being a witness today. We're talking about being Christian and not wanting anything other than, like, what it means to be in love with a God and worship him and serve him and know of him and walk the streets like you know him and walk the streets and be of use to him. And we're talking about what does that entail like for some of us, maybe some of you go to Bible college, some of you go to a Christian college, some of you study the Bible, you've been under good exposition. You're like, man, this is so fundamental to me. But do you know that the Bible really doesn't have all these secret messages? It's all the same thing. It's the same thing. But what we're seeing here is an example that we can follow of a great man named John who has a whole extensive resume, but when he stepped into a realm where there was spiritual expectation and when there was spiritual interrogation, he didn't even big himself up. He just brought himself low and said, don't think about me. We're talking about somebody who, I mean, gives us an example of what it is, somebody who minimizes themselves. John the Baptist had disciples who got mad that Jesus' clout eclipsed John's clout. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, John's clout eclipsed Jesus' clout. So much so that his disciples used to argue, like, come on, man. I mean, Jesus is chill, but, you know, we've been on the block. That's why John even had to tell his disciples, he must increase, I must decrease. Go and be his disciple. We live in an age where we confuse who's who. We live in an age where we serve man rather than God. We're just wired that way. 
this John here is giving us, verse 19 to 34, is giving us an example of what we ought to do properly. That we don't do that. We point to the one. And we even make ourselves smaller so people won't get it twisted. He's preexistent. Once again, Mace covered this. So this is a reiteration of just what we studied in the prologue, verses 1 to 18. He just, now he keeps going. Look at this. He says here, he came before me, meaning even though he was born after me, I know that he outranks me because he's first place in everything. And I know that he came before me uh, in importance. And it says here, I myself did not know him. For this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. He bears witness to the fact that he's present. And this is good to us because by the time John gets on the scene, Jesus has already been moving around the scenes, but cats are sleeping on him, which is why he says, there's one among you. Doesn't mean that he was there at the moment, but there's one who's been hanging in our circles that y'all don't understand who he is. He's present. He's not. You don't have to wait for Jesus to come back. And in their days, like you're not, you don't have to wait for Messiah to come anymore. He's here, which is why God rigged a baptismal uh, session where everyone would be forced to come who's being drawn. Everyone would be forced to come, and we know even Jesus went to him to make sure that people didn't get it twisted. You know, the Pharisees, they were the ones in charge at this time. So if Jesus was to properly get accepted as a leader in Israel, he had to be among their group. Everybody looked at the Pharisees as the most religious and the best group you could be a part of if you was a devout Jew. By coming and submitting to John's baptism, what Jesus was saying is, I'm not coming in the order of the Pharisees. I'm coming in the order of the voice crying out in the wilderness who represents a whole separate spiritual authority and entity. I'm not the Pharisees, young buck. I submit to the message and I'm getting ready to inaugurate what John has been preparing you all for. He looks and he says, man, it's like, and, and, and John is saying, look, I'm just an announcer. You know how today we got like Michael Buffer who will announce and make more than some boxers make. <laughs> like you don't know who the show is about. Let's get ready to rumble a million dollars every time he does that. And you got some boxers who barely make that. Some boxers who don't make that. John is saying, yo, I'm not Michael Buffer. I don't, I don't make more than the one I'm introducing. <laughs> He's powerful, not just power in his reigning, power in his suffering. He's preeminent. He's first place. Everybody step back. He's preexistent. I'm older than him on earth, but he's before me in reality. He's present. You don't have to search for him anymore. He's on the scene. Not only that, look, he says he's got the spirit. <laughs> He's got the spirit. And John bore witness, verse 32. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. He's got the spirit. He gives the spirit. He is the Son. And I'm going to close. In the context here, Jesus Christ is saying, and John keeps making this point. I baptize with water. doesn't say any more about it. I baptize with water, making this clear distinction between him. I baptize with water, 
He's coming baptizing with the Spirit. I baptize with water. He's coming baptizing with the Spirit. The one who sent me to baptize with water. In other words, he's putting a limit. That's all I do. There's one who's coming who's... And so my purity is really external. There's one who's coming to spiritually cleanse, and that's the real issue. The real issue is someone's coming to do what I've been doing with water, spiritually speaking, and that's who you need to make way for, the one who comes with the Spirit. Matter of fact, he comes with the Spirit, and he will baptize with the Spirit, meaning he will impart the Spirit, spiritual cleaning and the Holy Spirit. And But guess what? He's not the Spirit. He is the Son of God. Believers today, in this land, where we are twiddling our thumbs spiritually. We've had more church than we know what to do with. You don't just go to church today. You watch church on TV. You listen to a church group or choir coming through your system. We're so tired of the routine of church that we're just doing it out of habit. What is there left for us to do? God says, can I get a witness? You know people are wondering. There's a expectations and investigations out there. God says, can I get a witness? And yeah, it might, you might find yourself under spiritual interrogation. God says, man, come on. Can I get a witness who will minimize the importance of their self? Can I get a witness who will magnify the importance of Jesus Christ? He says, yo, here's your details. Let me detail it for you. Talk to them about the power of Jesus. Don't have a soft Jesus. Don't have a weak Jesus. Have a Jesus who's powerful enough to conquer evil and deal with sin and the sin in the world. Have a Jesus who's powerful enough to suffer and by his blood take care of the sin of man. Have a Jesus who didn't just come on the scene. He's not a Johnny come lately who just popped on the scene. Have a Jesus who always existed. Make sure your Jesus always existed. Don't have the Jehovah Witness Jesus who at a point in time was created. Make sure you got the right Jesus. Have a preeminent Jesus, not one who comes in first place and then on that last exercise when they were hoping he just going to do a clean house, he loses. Come say, man, you got a four goals and a bronze. Don't have that Jesus. All goals. Have a Jesus who comes to do more than just take, give people a bath, but who come to deal with people's deep-rooted issues, their spiritual issues, because that's what God's got a problem with, their spiritual issues. Have a Jesus who comes and gives the spirit. Don't have a Jesus who comes with just good teachings like John Thomas Jefferson's old Bible that just has some moral teachings of Jesus Christ. Have a Jesus who comes to give you more than just words, but comes to breathe into you life. The third person of the Godhead who's going to rest and abide in you and remain in you like he remained on him. Have a Jesus who, don't get it twisted, is not the father because that's not who he is. Who's not the spirit because that's not who he is. Who's the son of God, uniquely related to Jesus Christ as the one in whom people must believe in in order to be saved. Y'all see how beautiful that is? And how John is moving into a gospel that he tells you this is so you'll believe in him. Remember, people believed in God. They had a problem with Jesus. Today, people have a problem with Jesus, except religious folk. He says, don't, don't, shun him, don't shy away from it. Believe ye in Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for John's gospel. We thank you for John the baptizer's Jesus. 
a Jesus who even eclipsed him. And we know that he was a rugged dude. We know that he was boisterous and loud. But here in John's gospel, we don't hear a rugged, rowd, rowdy preacher. We hear a calm and collective and humbled witness. Someone who's minimizing who they are and making a big deal about who you are, Lord Jesus. Father, give us the spirit of boldness to be your witnesses, to proclaim in you in all of your splendor. Lord Jesus, let Epiphany Fellowship help spark in people this desire to know and serve the Lord Jesus, who's the Lamb, mighty in power, yet went on the cross to shed blood, to get rid of sin. Lord God, we are praying these things because so many people are religious, but they're not saved. And we are praying that no one would leave out here just with the facts, wrong or right, that they would embrace the Christ and be saved. In Jesus' name, amen.